Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Everybody here, as I said before, is passionate about the subject of Israel, uh, however you feel about it, and so uh, here I get to lavish attention together with you on its history. I, I repeat, lavish attention on history, and now I'll get right into it. Uh, we're covering the vast area of September, of, no, I mean, 1952 to 56. Um, as you see, to be perfectly honest, I just found that I was going to do, I was going to start with a, with a survey of the Jewish communities around the world, but our uh, sponsors, the Radowski, was supposed to be away. I'm just informed as a result of the shutdown. The national parks are not available, so they're not away there with us. So one of the rules of history is you can't count even on the federal government. They, uh, <laughs> instead, I flipped the first two titles, and I'll go right into something which is actually not funny at all, and that is coping by ignoring Jews in the shadow of the Holocaust in 52 to 56. Um, the shock of the Holocaust was followed by a period of time when people didn't want to talk about it too much. So even though ordinarily one thinks that the more immediate something happened, the more powerful it is, but you and I know it's actually not true. When something bad happens, anyone who's a physician, anyone who's a psychologist, anyone who's gone through difficult traumatic periods, it, it, it takes a while before you can talk about it. Isn't that true? Right? You, you don't want to talk about it right away, especially something as powerful as the Shoah. Uh, first of all, it's so depressing. It just is. And Jews in America, as well as Jews that is around the world, did not want to hear about it. Our sensibilities have changed in 50, 60 years. And even then, it's actually not so simple. Me, myself, and I, I can't put real pictures up here for most of you. People can't handle that, usually, or they find it very distasteful, even though they know it happened. And that's an American audience. This is true of audiences around the world. Uh, moreover, when it was so raw and new, and you met people one after another getting off the boat and coming to Baltimore, wherever it is, uh, the people over here, when you actually hear what really happened, and not just in a general way that there were millions of people killed and tortured, when they tell you what individual experiences and the horrors. Um, rabbi Herzberg, where I'm the rabbi now, you know, he was very big in helping Holocaust survivors and all that, really, but I mean, he, you know, many of them told me himself, you know, Menashe, Shammah, the others, they started telling the rabbi, he said, this happened, Menashe, he said, don't, don't give me all the details. You understand? And this is someone who was the opposite of being callous, who devoted a good deal of his life to helping these people. So, but I know what you went through, I can't stand it. The Ger Rebbe, the famous in Israel, where all these guys and their Ger Hasidim get off and they come to Palestine after 45, especially after 48 and 49, and they all go, and you know how if you go to a Rebbe, you spill it all and all the rest, and they said, don't tell me, I, you know, I want to help you, let's you know, talk practical, let's look to the future. I'm not deprecating what you went through, obviously, or anything like that, I don't but don't give me the details. So that's the type of period it was. Second of all, it was a guilty conscience, of course. After all, the Jews in America and in Palestine could have done more. That's the simple fact. And they knew it, and people didn't want to uh, talk about it. That's religious and not religious. The associated with this group, that group. When it's all said and done, you can make all the excuses in the world, but the magnitude of the horror was such that people, everybody, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Everybody knew that things could have been better and different. The victim makes you feel uncomfortable simply because it's your own guilt, but you're projecting, of course, on the other person. Thirdly, uh, the immediate agenda was full. 
after 1945, as we've seen, and you know anyway, the main agenda was to take care of the, the refugees, the displaced persons, and then wage the struggle for the establishment of the State of Israel. That took up a lot of energy. That's totally understandable. The establishment of the State of Israel, of a Jewish state for the first time in 2,000 years, of course, um, quote-unquote compensated for the Holocaust among the many people. That's a famous a speech of Rabbi Soloveitchik, I'll talk about later, I hope, in this semester, where he, uh, where he says in 56 and all the rest of it, that he feels theologically and otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's weird and it doesn't actually make sense in the logical sense, but nevertheless, it's like you paid the price for the show and then we got the Jewish state. There's a certain nechama or a certain understanding, whether, it, I'm not talking about whether this works in a debate class or in a logic class, but people felt that the kishkas, you know, we had a terrible price, but we got something for it. You see? And that sort of palliated it for, 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 for the immediate time. And finally, after 1948, there was the gigantic struggle that I spoke about last year uh, to a lot of you in this audience to put Israel on its feet, economically, militarily, and in terms of the mass aliyah. So if you're talking about an era when you had all the members of the Ma'abarot and the mass refugee camps and Israel being overwhelmed with just trying to stay afloat, uh, <laughs> now's not the time to talk about Eichmann. You get it? You know, now's the time to raise money for the UJA, as they said, to go uh, provide a, a, a milk, you know, to provide food, uh, and certainly provide for the defense of the country and things like that. And uh, we'll talk about the Shoah later. And, uh, and then uh, in Israel itself, there was also uh, an unspoken element of a deep shame, uh, of a rape that could not be punished. Uh, the Jewish, you know, it's, if you have any kind of national thing for Klai Yisrael in any sense, and they did all this to us and they got away with it and a third of our people were killed and tortured and all this ways, and it's, it's the feeling of having been violated, which as a nation we were. And this is something that's very hard to, to deal with, as you know. I mean, think of these kinds of, I mean, how do, in, in Israel they talk about the new Jew, the modern state of Israel, the fact we have uh, Tzahal and all the rest, but we all know what happened five minutes ago. And same thing for American Jews. And so it's just an unbelievable, no one should ever undergo, have to go any kind of situation where they're attacked or violent, raped or anything like this, obviously. But you understand that the victim has a certain reluctance to revisit that sort of thing. You understand? And this was very much in the, uh, in, in the conscience and the consciousness of so many Jews around the world. Uh, the shame and rage was exacerbated, actually, in Israel by the carefully cultivated muscular Zionistic image of the fighting Jew and the new Jew which was so much at the heart of contemporary Israeli culture, especially in those years. The Israeli army defeated the Arabs. Uh, they're creating, as they say, you know, the new Jew. We'll see later, there's a whole discourse in secular Zionism, in secular Zionism, that we have no shaykh as a connection with the Jewish past, and, you know, there's the Golah Jew and all that kind of stuff, and that's the new thing over here. And who are they fooling? You know, five minutes ago, the Jews were in, herded in the cattle cars and things like that. These notions had gone back to the first Chalutzim, of the separate, the fighting, the proud Jew. You can't beat me up. You know, you punch me, I punch you back. But they'd be given a shock by the Holocaust when so many Jews went, as the expression was constantly put in Israeli literature, katzon l'tavachivo, like the lambs to the slaughter. And, you know, what is there about us? that Why didn't we all go fighting, at least, and, uh, you know, and fight back over there? Uh, why didn't they fight? Now, it's not really right, anything I'm saying, you know. Uh, I'm talking about what happened historically. And I'm telling you, this is the basic features of the Israeli culture, which is that they're knocking the survivors, because why are you a bunch of losers, and why didn't you fight back? 
And why do so many people in your families all to get, get, get hurt without resisting and that kind of thing. Uh, many children, this is sad, who uh, are from the Holocaust, DPs, who come to Israel after 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, all those years are uh, verbally abused by uh, fellow kids in schools and even teachers and things the opposite of what should have been done instead of trying to give as much nechama and, and help them out as much as they, they could, um, this was not the attitude that one found on the kibbutzim and on day-to-day life in reality and in schools, as I say, and it was really rough. Hence, um, Israel and world Jewry gets fixated on the kind of Jewish experience in the Shoah that they would like to see, that you see over here. This one. Yeah, here's a, a Hollywood recreation re- of the Warsaw Ghetto. Oh, that, uh, that you have a lot of writing about in Israel. See, they have a lot of writing about an American uh, uh, Jewish literature also, because that's the heroic Jew. Now, this is not to knock the Warsaw Ghetto, and this is the kind of images that they want to see. This is all a dra- dramatization, right? But you want to see Jews killing Germans, right? Jews dying heroically, uh, taking them down with us. And, of course, the Warsaw Ghetto did happen, obviously, and there were other similar uprisings here and there, not many, in Kovno and a few other places like that, but you and I know this is radically the exception. And does this mean that anybody that wasn't involved in this is a coward? You see? That's the meaning of the kind of rhetoric that was spouted across America and, and very heavily in Israel and in other Jewish communities around the world. Um, if you want to talk about the Shoah, you say Hitler killed six million, but there was the famous Warsaw Ghetto or there were these uh, heroes that fought, and they are heroes, Nobody's, that's not the point. The point is, what do you say about the others that are not involved in that sort of thing? A kind of active Israeli dissociation from the cowardly behavior of the Jews of the Shoah um, took place. And yet, Israel is a place, not simply in 1948 and 4950, of uh, you know, uh, cultural slogans and images, it's actually real people. And here comes something I'm gonna be speaking about at some length tonight, and that has to do with the following. Uh, many Jews fought in the uh, Warsaw Ghetto. Well, not many, some did. Uh, many Jews uh, were what we call Dad al Hashem. No question about that. Uh, many Jews did bad things in the Holocaust. True or not? Um, it's it's, it's an, a wound you don't want to look at. Uh, who killed your mother? Not always the Germans. Sometimes the Jewish police working for the Judenrat and things like that. It's, it's, it's messy. And there he is, and there she is. You know, they're, they're right in our show, or on the street, walking down the street in Tel Aviv, or Yerushalayim. You walk in the movie, it's happened over and over again in the early years of Israel. You walk in the movie theater, or you go in the supermarket, or whatever it is. He killed my mother. He, he put my sister on the, on the train. He whacked my finger. He, this guy beat me up. Is a Jew. Kapo. A very a sad. All kind of people. Uh, one of the big ministers in the government, Yitzhak Greenbaum, very anti-religious guy from the General Zionist, one of the big Zionist leaders. He had a son that didn't make Aliyah, ended up in Auschwitz, was a very vicious compo, you know? Then later on ended up in Israel. What do you do with him? And uh, the result was that a lot of uh, people in Israel, citizens, very, feel very strong about this. Like, how can a person like, how can he be in the movies over here? And how can this guy walk up the street? It's, it's, it's a Jewish state. There was some punishment for what they did. But, you know, you have a country of laws or you don't have a country of laws? There's no law in the books that says you can't be a couple. I, mean, I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, but think about it. There are lawyers here that will understand what I'm saying. If something's not in the statute books, what do you do to the guy or to the lady? 
And so there's a move in Israel in 49 and 50 to pass laws, um, those who helped the Nazis, you know, to punish those who helped the Nazis, a violation of laws against the Jewish people. And ironically, this is not so much against Eichmann and people like that, although they're, of course, covered under this. It's against people walking around in the streets of Israel and elsewhere. Now, if they're elsewhere, there's literally nothing you can do about it. What happens, if, I'm sure this happened in Baltimore, I don't know the details, but it's happened everywhere. And I read about it in newspaper accounts and whatever, and uh, Reverend Stern told me there was a case like that in Vishnitz, you know, in the 50s he read about. You see a guy over there? The person might actually, believe it or not, come back to Yiddishkeit. And it's also, to a certain degree, you, know, you don't know what it was like being submitted to that kind of uh, torture and uh, what, how badly you, or, or well you react under pressure. Not everyone's a hero. And uh, what indeed do you do? This happens often. When you see somebody, like I say, sitting next to you in the synagogue or on the subway train or somewhere else, and they said, this guy did this, this uh, to me. What do you do about it? It's not a simple matter at all. Would you agree? And, uh, and sometimes you have real horror stories. These are from the old Israeli newspapers where they, the guy says to somebody who, who had been a kid, you know, like a late teenager in Auschwitz, something like that, he says, uh, you drove my mother uh, to the gas chamber. He said, yes, I did. I drove my own mother to the gas chamber too. He said, I did terrible things. Uh, I can only say it was 1943. You know, I have nothing to say. So what do, you, what do you do about this? Well, the Israel of that time, as I say, they actually passed laws about this, which is something we'll come to uh, very shortly. Uh, there's nothing unique over here in what I'm talking about. Uh, the reason I have Mitterrand over here, with, he's the president of France, and he was head of the Socialist Party, and he's a big deal of a member of the left, and for the democratic and pro-Semitic as opposed to anti-Semitic left. Yeah, sure, but when he was young, they found out after he was president that he was part of the Vichy uh, administration uh, helping to transport Jews to Dronsey and take them off to Auschwitz and places like that. But you don't want to talk about this if, in, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. The whole Europe is a conspiracy of silence. If you really want to know what people did in Belgium, in Holland, certainly in Germany, obviously, but in Italy, in one country after another, and what did you do in the war, Daddy or Mom? Uh, I'll tell you what, I was a hero. Yeah, right. Uh, well, I'm just saying, it's a culture a post-war culture of lying, of reinventing the past, of refashioning memory, because the actual truth was not very nice. And I share this with you because, as I say before, this is the shadow of the Holocaust that we're talking about. It was over, but it left a lot of junk besides. And in Israel, this is exacerbated or uh, aggravated by uh, uh, Ben-Gurion's attitude, very famously in general, even without the Holocaust, who, who always advanced a very selective view of Jewish history, which skipped over the Shoah, it also skipped over 2,000 years. A big uh, point of Ben-Gurion, and remember, he's the founder of Israel, he's the major cultural influence in all this, is Jewish history goes like this. Uh, there was the patriarchs, then we have Eretz Yisrael once or twice, then we lost it, we were away for five minutes and we're back. What happened? No, no, I mean it. And what happened during those five minutes? Who cares? What happens in Ashkenaz and Sephard and medieval Spain and this and that and the other and Germany? Who cares? You say, no, it's part of the junk of the past. We were away for a couple of minutes and now we're back. And I understand why somebody like him would want to talk that way. I mean, I, I, I do get it, but it, it deprecates and it, it, it devaluates uh, the, the, the sufferings of people 
if they're still there and they still have any kind of memory. And by the way, he had relatives that were, he said he made a speech. He said, I have a, uh, a niece and a husband and, and several children were burned by the Germans and all that. And he went right after the war was over to the DP camps. I mean, he understood what, what, what's going on, but he's trying unsuccessfully to create a new type of Judaism, a new type of Jew, a new type of Jewish identity to displace the old. And we're not talking about the year 2013 when this is already bankrupt and out the window. Uh, in 2013, a million people will show up at a Vadios' funeral in five minutes' notice. This we're talking about Israel in 1950 when things were very different and they really are trying to construct um, a, a new Jewish identity across the board. Um, and yet... Um, the uh, Holocaust was really Israel's most powerful international weapon. I didn't bring the book with me, but in Abba Ibn's uh, memoirs, he uh, talks about the fact that in uh, 52, when uh, Truman and Atchison were still in office, and Atchison was the Secretary of State, very cold guy, very absolutely logical. He can't even tell by looking at the face. And no sympathy for Jews whatsoever. Okay? Not, if it's, it's, not if it's to the detriment of the United States. And he said he went to Atchison and he said, we want you to help us with Germany. They should give money for the reparations payments. And he said, well, it's not an interest in America. We're trying to build up Germany and so on and so forth. And I didn't bring the book, but, but he, he says, Dav Eben says, I started describing what they did in Auschwitz and in Treblinka and all this. And I said, yeah, I know, and this and this and this. And after five minutes, Atchison broke down. You can't believe it. And he says, all right, I hear the point. I'll, I'll, I'll get you the money. See? So what about the new Jew? <laughs> what about the fact that we're not relying upon the sufferings of the pa- baloney, you know? <laughs> When, at the end of the day, Israel's most powerful weapon for many years, and even today to some degree, is the Holocaust. Uh, to a large degree, uh, Israel got its legitimacy thanks to the, the, the displaced persons. And even Truman said, and I showed you last year, he said, I still get nightmares when I think about these people, that's why I helped Israel. So it's a funny relationship to this past that on the one hand you have to grasp, and on the other hand you're trying to deny. And this is what we call conflictedness, and that I leave to the Sigmund Freuds out there. Uh, but uh, the last piece of the pie in 1952 was precisely the fact that this country, Germany, which did so many bad things to Israel, instead of being nuked or put into Cherem, Israel had to kiss up to them to get the money. Right? A lot of Jews didn't like it, but the country went along with them. Ben-Gurion said, we don't have the luxury of uh, turning our backs in Germany. They're going to be part of the new Europe and the new world. It's, it's a major force in the economy. We can, and we're broke. We're beyond broke. We need money to bring in the refugees. We need money to, 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 to build houses and to set up the new Israel. We don't have the luxury. And so what a bitter irony of history it is that the modern proud state of Israel has to come like this, hat in hand, asking money Germany, which they've not stopped until today. And Germany gave them the money. So it's kind of funny. You know, you killed my mother. You, 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 you murdered my father. You did this, that, and the other. Can I have 10 cents? <laughs> right? Can you, buddy, can you spare a dime? And uh, Adauer, you know, made things worse by saying yes. So then you've got to, you know, show a certain respect for them. And once again, that nothing, that cannot help but uh, aggravate the conflictedness that they'll feel towards the whole subject of the show and all the rest of it. Israel had its uh, hands full in those years, as you see. There's no effort to hunt any kind of Nazi war criminals that comes much later. Uh, There's no effort to find Eichmann or anything like that. In America... They're still in the period where there are no kinos in Shul for the Shoah. This is a change that's happened in my lifetime. But and there's still places that don't. Uh, but I'm just saying there wasn't even a push. Not that I remember growing up. Uh, the, the, you know, Tisha B'Av is about Tisha B'Av. The Shoah is a separate thing. Uh, mostly uh, the people want to speak about it. Or the Yiddish-speaking groups of immigrants want to talk about it. 
and they are not in, uh, in a, the necessary socioeconomic level to have any clout you know, with the associated. And even then, they don't want to talk about it much. Frankly, they want to, the, the healthy ones want to go and build families, right? The, 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 the healthiest approach to dealing with the Holocaust was to get it past you and not talk about it. And how many people grew up not wanting to talk about it even to their own children? Although, sometimes, the reason you don't want to talk about your own children is maybe you were a capo. You don't want to talk about it. Or things like that. Uh, the old Yiddishists, believe it or not, in America, this is disgusting. They're still holding by Stalinism and Trotskyism. Here's Irving Howe, the most famous Jewish uh, socialist writer. Uh, he doesn't acknowledge the Holocaust for another 30 years. In the 1940s, even during the war, these guys, these are Fabrenta communists and you know, left-wing socialists, they don't care about the fact. They pay, it's amazing. You read the writings. They don't even talk about the Holocaust. They're talking about you know, Stalin and, 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 and socialism and this kind of Trotskyism and that sort of thing. They're, they're out to lunch. It's, it, 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 it's uh, pretty shocking. And sometimes focusing too much on the Shoah is bad for your health. Everybody knows Rabbi Weissmandel got a heart attack when he wrote the Minamatsar after the war. You understand? Uh, reliving the memories and rewriting his, uh, his uh, experience that he went through the Shoah um, gave him a heart attack. It's, you know, it was so depressing, which is totally understandable. And then comes an event in the history of Israel which shatters the culture of silence about the war in the period I'm talking about, between 52 and 56, and which catapulted discussion about the Jews' role in the war, particularly Jewish controversial roles in the war, to the center of public discourse in the state of Israel. And I'm referring, of course, to the famous Kastner affair of 1952 to 55. Okay, 52 to 55. Uh, this involved the story of Hungarian Jewry during the Holocaust. Hungary, as I've described in other places, had a peculiar history during the Second World War. Let me just say that uh, the Shoah is not an undifferentiated story. It depends where and when you were in Second World War. I've said on a number of occasions, many don't know this, if you were in Romania, uh, and you were in the right place in Romania, in Central Romania, there's no, there's no Holocaust. I mean, it was bad, but they never took the Jews off elsewhere. They never took them to Auschwitz. Uh, not because the government was a tzaddikim, but it just never happened for a variety of reasons. On the other hand, if you were a few miles over in a place called Satmar, which is, you know, uh, part of Hungary, they stuck a finger into Romania and gave the territory to, to Hungary. Then all of a sudden there's a full Holocaust in 1944. And if you're in Poland, that's really the wrong place to be. And so uh, the story we're dealing with is one particular aspect of the Holocaust. That became the controversy. And uh, let me try to explain. Here's the map of Europe uh, in 1939, just the time it began. Look how big Hitler was. At that time, he had taken over Czechoslovakia and Austria. Correct? This is before the Second World War. Remember the Anschluss in 1938 and the seizure of the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia. Germany's very big. Now look over here. Here's Hungary, here's Romania. Look how uh, Hungary used to be this big, much bigger. It used to be all Slovakia, whole big area, 800,000 Jews. Uh, but they lost most of this territory after the First World War. However, wait a minute, let's go back for a second. Let's see, yeah. Hungary is small, but Hungary allied itself with Germany. And uh, it wasn't a Nazi government exactly, but it was a pro-fascist type situation. Uh, traditional conservatives, as we'll see, and for their own political reasons, they allied themselves uh, with uh, Germany. So in other words, they declared war on Russia, on America, on England, together with Germany during the Second World War, and were rewarded by Hitler 
by getting some extra karka. Let's see the next one. If you can see, Hitler gave him a finger, like you see, like that, into Romania. As they said for. Isn't that weird? If you lived in here in Romania, or here, you, didn't, you survived the Second World War. If you had the misfortune to live in that finger, you got killed. That's Satmar, that's Kloisenberg, that's Marmarosh, that's all the from area. Okay? And um, so it's a very weird story. The, the chief of, the, the uh, ruler of Hungary, the official ruler, what they call the regent, was Admiral Horthy who uh, was a very old-fashioned conservative, but he wasn't interested in killing six million Jews at all. He was, you know, just what you call a very right-wing conservative type of ruler, hungry, very anti-communist, all the rest of it. These things combined to make a reality, without skipping all the details, that until 1944, I repeat, until 1944, so 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, Hungary was a relative oasis of safety in Europe. Isn't that funny? North of Hungary, they're killing millions of Jews in Poland and places like that. That's where they're running the concentration camp and exterminating everybody. At the same time, if you were a rare Polish Jew and you were able to get into the Hungarian border, if uh, in those years that I'm talking about, there was, there was no safety. Of course, there were, uh, they had the Nuremberg laws and a Jew can't sit on the park bench and he can't have an employee this way and the other. But we're talking about the Second World War. The only thing that matters, are they going to kill you or not? If they're not going to kill you, call that an oasis of safety. Um, Hungarian Jewish uh, act, activists, uh, I'm sure you know, uh, for example, uh, I'll, I'll show you later, the Eimah Banim Smecha, the Rabbi Teichtal, he was in Slovakia, he, and when they were killing the Jews, he ran away to Hungary, he was uh, safe for a year or two. You see? I, my own, I'm named after somebody, uh, an Uncle David, who, uh, in second world, he was in Slovakia, my mother's brother, and then, what you call it, uh, he was able to survive for a couple of years by running away to Hungary, and then things happened, and by the time it was over, he got killed. But for a couple of years, in Budapest and places like that, if you keep your uh, profile down, and you don't walk around too much in the street in the daytime so the police can ask for your passport, or if you have a successful uh, false passport, or if you're able to bribe somebody, you can live a life that could kill you. The shoals operated, yeshivas operated, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 it was a Jewish life. Now, um, during this time, when Hungary was better off than elsewhere, Hungarian Jewish activists tried to provide at least a little bit of help for the Jews in Poland and Slovakia. So what that means is that there were some Jews who said, I'm not going to worry only about myself, uh, because here in Hungary it's okay, but what can we do to help other Jews? These would include Zionists, non-Zionists, uh, Haredim, the Mizrahi, all different uh, elements. But there were a few Yechidim from each of these groups, that said, uh, what can we do? We can't do much, but we can save a few. We can try to get people smuggled over the border, right? You can try to play a little bit of mishmash with the passports. Maybe you can bribe somebody or whatever. You have a friend in the Ministry of the Interior to look the other way. And they did help some people to do what I just told you. It's a very complicated story, but I'm, I'm giving you the simple part of it. Until March of 1942, you hear what I'm saying? From 1940, mainly 41 and 42, until March of 1942, all the killing took place in Poland and the East, as they called it. The German army, if you recall, took over Poland and they invaded Russia. And so what that means is they took over uh, White Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine, and Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. That's where the German name was directly there. And there, I recall the very depressing statistic that they shot one and a half million Jews. No, this is before concentration camps were invented. This is where the gas chambers were even started. Just, just good old-fashioned shooting. They shot million and a half people in six months, from June to December or so, something like that, 
in, uh, in 41. So they weren't shooting people in Czechoslovakia, they weren't shooting people in Germany and Austria, they weren't shooting people in Hungary and Romania and places like that. It depends where and when you are. Um, in March of 42, they have the Wannsee Conference that was in January of 42. So in March of 42, they want to extend it beyond Poland and the East. And what about all these other countries that, that, that make up a lot of Europe? Uh, the Germans come to Slovakia, that was the first country. Can, can, can we go back to the map for a second? Yeah, uh, go to the next map, the previous map. Ah, that's right. See, Slovakia was a separate little country. So in other words, they killed everybody, or in the, they were in the process of killing everybody here uh, by shooting and things like this. Now they're going to set up concentration camps, uh, better yet, extermination camps, uh, all throughout Poland. And they're going to carry out, and they do, as we know, the mass extermination of Polish Jews, three and a half million of them, uh, in 42, the great majority. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, now we can extend it, says uh, Himmler and Heydrich and Eichmann, all these uh, murderers. And the first country goes to Slovakia, which was a small state, as you can see, and allied to Hitler, and was run by a Catholic priest. He was the president over there, of Father Tiso. And the Germans come to Slovakia, and they deport two-thirds of the Slovakian Jews, 55,000, something like that, uh, to death camps in Poland, all, almost all of whom were killed. I had a lot of relatives that were killed in that way, two-thirds. Uh, the last third was not killed. And why? Uh, two reasons. Uh, believe it or not, uh, the Catholic Church protested. Uh, we always have this image, I mean, I know it's a little shocking to people, but the Pope was not as silent as people make him out to be, Pope Pius XII. I know all the politics are going on in that, but then people don't really have the full picture. Uh, when the Catholic Church found out that they're actually taking him to kill him, which the Germans said they're taking him to the labor camps, then you see the, the president of, Czech, of Slovakia was a Catholic priest. And so this is the old days, not like today, where they don't listen to the Pope. And then we got orders, he says, you shouldn't do this, this is bad. And, uh, and the government already was not interested in, in carrying this out. And second of all, uh, Jewish activism, because the Slovakian Jews, seeing that they're being killed altogether um, for a change, uh, came to Achtus. And so groups that never talked to each other formed together what they call the working group. And so, like I say, the from, the non-from, the communist, the socialist, the, uh, the opposite, reform, conservative, orthodox, everybody together uh, came under the leadership of this lady, Gizzy Fleischman, who um, uh, was a, uh, well, you can see over here, she, she was the daughter of a sheikh, and I don't think she was from, but, uh, but very traditional. You know, in Slovakia, you don't have reform Judaism or anything like that. Very traditionalist. And, uh, and her kids had made Aliyah already, and uh, she could have gone and she stayed behind to work for Hatzala. And she teamed up with Robert Weissmandel from the Aguda and other people from the Socialists and other people from the Assimilated Jews, all the rest of it. What can we do uh, in a practical way to, to, to deal with this uh, kind of a group? And uh, the end of the story, Weissmandel being a traditional Jew, so I guess bribe him. And, uh, well, that's in the Gemara. You know, look, we can smile and smirk all you want. How have Jews survived as a helpless minority, uh, as the Talmud tells us, as a sheep? among 70 wolves for 2,000 years. It's not through altruism. Right? I mean, that, that, that's, the way, that's the way it is. Uh, I don't want to be over cynical. How does Israel survive today? I'll stop right there. Now, um, uh, and so to get to Eichmann's number two guy, Vislatani, uh, and to Father Tiso, believe it or not, and they bribed him. And uh, as a result, um, it wasn't even that much money, $50,000. Not that much money. Um, and as a result, the last third of Slovakian Jewry is not killed. Uh, Slovakia is a relatively safe place for Jews for the next two years, from October of 42 to September of 44. 
So in other words, from April or so, April to October, something like that of 42, I don't want to bore you with the details. That's when they transport 55, 56,000 Slovakian Jews and kill them. And then it stops. And it stopped for two years. And only because they paid the guy off. And he says, I'm in a position to mess up the train schedule, do whatever I want. And uh, he did it. Not only that, look, that's how my mother, that's how I'm here. <laughs> my mother was on the other third. She had sisters and others that were in the first two thirds that got killed. And she was from the third third and didn't get killed. Um, uh, not only that, but Vislitsany, this, uh, as you see, a Nazi guy, uh, even says like this, for $200,000, I could stop the whole show. Isn't it? Uh, I'm in the position to do it, or maybe it was $220,000, and uh, give, me, give me a down payment of 10%, and you'll see it happen. I can stop them sending trains from France and Belgium and Germany and Poland. It was incredible. And, uh, of course, they wanted to do it, and the money, they couldn't get the money. The World Jewish Organization wouldn't give it. And uh, in Hungary, they couldn't raise the money. And it did not happen. They called it the Europa Plan. While this was happening, another group of activists formed in Budapest, in Hungary. What I just described to you took place in Bratislava in Slovakia. But one country over is uh, Hungary. And they're a similar type of situation. Although the Jews in Hungary, as I just described to you, in the years I'm talking about, didn't face any kind of extermination threat. But they came together to try to work on Hatzala issues, to try to get the Polish Jews in Hungary. And uh, as I told you before, that's how uh, Rabbi Teichtal, from the name of Anasmecha uh, fame, was able to survive and write his book. His community, he was from Slovakia, Peschani. His, uh, his community was all killed because they were from the two-thirds of Slovakian Jewry. He hid. They didn't catch him. And he runs away one country over into Hungary. He's alive for another year or two. And during that time, he writes his famous book, the name of Anasmecha. Uh, so you see, your faith depended on where you were and when you were in, in the years 1940-45. These activists that I'm describing operate on a different plane. They're in contact with outside groups from Switzerland and Palestine and Turkey and America. To, you know, they're getting cables from all over the world. As you see, in, in Slovakia, uh, they said, just give us $200,000. And it wasn't a from operation itself. Rabbi Elias Mandel was only one member of a group that was very widely dispersed. Uh, Gizzi Fleischman, I told you before, was a real heroine. She, the Germans eventually killed her. Uh, she was a big macher in the, uh, what you call it, the Joint Distribution Committee and the WISO and all this kind of uh, sort of things. Uh, and, it didn't, and it didn't happen. The uh, name of the group of activists in Budapest was called the Vat Ezer Vatsala. Obviously, it is not identical with the Vat Ezer in America. The Vat Ezer Vatsala, and one of its most important members was a young lawyer from Kloisenberg. His name was Rudolf Kastner. Okay? He's going to be the, the big uh, controversial guy. Um, he is, as I said before, from Kloisenberg. Kloisenberg, if you follow the maps I showed you before, I noticed a little bit confusing, was in Romania. Well, let's start again. Hungary, Romania, Hungary, get it? It used to be part of the old kingdom of Hungary in Franz Josef's time. And then, which is why the Kloisenberg Jews are Hungarians. And then, as, as a result of the First World War, it was given over with all the rest of Transylvania to be Romanian. Next thing, they found themselves a part of Romania. And then Hitler gave that finger of territory I showed you before to Hungary, and then included Kloisenberg or Cluj, as they call it, Hungarian, or Kolishvar, or, or whatever. And, yeah, Kolishvar. And the, uh, the Romanians call Cluj. The, 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 the point is that, uh, as a well-known Jewish community, his father was a, a learned in the Pressburg Yeshiva, was a from guy. Uh, the mother wasn't so from. Therefore, when he's growing up, she wouldn't say, I don't want it to be like my husband, a botlin, so I, I'm gonna get, I want to send you to a good school. And he goes to a gymnasium. And Kloisenberg has a very secular type education, as he does who grow up so from. Uh, obviously, and uh, uh, on the other hand, he becomes a lawyer, 
and an activist in Jewish uh, causes and a very capable uh, type of guy and uh, he gets involved in somebody's uh, smuggling immigrants to Palestine, whatever, you don't have to go and all that. But as I just pointed out to you, then Hitler gives that territory to Hungary. So all of a sudden he said, why am I hanging around Kleisenberg? The main action is in Budapest. And so he relocates to Budapest and he spoke nine languages as these Jews have to do in Central Europe. And so it was no problem for him. Uh, and here you have a young, um, ambitious guy who uh, is uh, having a law practice in Budapest. It's also getting involved in Jewish activities. And if it's the years I'm talking about, it's the 40s, it's going to be uh, Zionist activities and Hatzalah type of activities along the lines that I just said before. Um, what does this mean? You meet with government officials, you bribe them, you find people's weaknesses, you make contact with people on the outside. Um, he got involved in shading dealings with the Germans. This is before the Germans come to Hungary. The whole question was, he a spy for them? I saw some Israeli professor now wrote something that he gave spy information to the Germans before it all happened. Was information providing one of the costs of doing business with the Germans? Was he crossing a line? Is such a question relevant in the moral chaos of the times? If you're talking about 1942, 1943, you're trying to get some Jews out of one place into another, and you can do it by giving them some information you come across. Is that the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do? Fortunately, we have the luxury here in Baltimore of just thinking about this in, in, in abstract terms. Um, then comes March of 1944, okay? And uh, all of a sudden, for a variety of reasons, uh, Hungary says we want to switch sides, and Hitler invades and occupies Hungary. Once Hitler occupies Hungary, then it's curtains for the Jews. Because in the Holocaust, where the German army was directly, it was bad news. Where the German army was not there, you could deal, bribe, you could do things like that. But where the German was directly, it was there. As soon as the German army occupies Hungary in March of 44, Eichmann shows up with his whole staff. Eichmann, of course, the guy who's going to implement the final solution. They, they apply the old model of exterminating entire communities, which we know what they are. You get the ghettos, you get the Jewish councils, the Judenrats, register all the Jews, get them to the trains, send the trains off to Poland, over. Unfortunately, Eichmann was quite efficient in implementing this plan, and in May, Shavuos of 44, uh, trains with Jews started rolling to Auschwitz. Within a few months, nearly half a million were sent to Auschwitz. It's a terrible efficiency. Uh, it's particularly sad when you consider it was late in the war. Right? Um, it, 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 well, I'll talk about it in a second. Eichmann could not have done this if the Jews themselves had not cooperated. Now, it's, well, it's uh, 1944, as you see. It's late in the day. If all the Jews say, we're not going to register, we're not going to do this, we're not going to run away, all the rest of it, it just simply would have been very difficult. A lot of people would have got caught by the Germans, a lot not. It just would have been, uh, how shall I put it, physically very difficult to get a hold of all those people and get them to where you want them to go, which is what the Holocaust is all about. You've got to organize it in such a way that you get up all the people where you want them, and you get them on the trains to how you want to do it, and you get them over here. Otherwise, it just the system doesn't work efficiently. It kind of breaks down. And the whole point of the Holocaust was to kill them all. Uh, it's important to keep in mind, this is, it was right in the middle of this. I just told you, in May of 44 begins the deportations. You know enough history to know that uh, right in the middle of this come two giant blows on Hitler. On June 6th of 44, D-Day, the Allies land in France. Okay, Eisenhower's armies. And uh, June 26th, a few weeks later, the Russians launched their D-Day, people don't know about it so much, Operation Bagration, uh, where they kicked the Germans out of Russia and conquered half of, oh, they busted the Germans bad, um, and bring the Russians close to Germany. So my point is, Eichmann is doing all this 
and he's getting away with it at a time when it's becoming increasingly clear to everybody that Germany is going to lose the war. I mean, here is uh, at the beginning of it, and by the time it's over, look at the Eastern Front. I mean, they lost all this stuff into Romania, and this is this is only first September. They they got even uh, farther over here. The Russians ripped them over here. This whole thing was part of Germany, and now Eisenhower has this, as you know, and pretty soon the Americans took over the rest of France uh, in June and uh, July and August of uh, '44. Uh, my point is, just as Germany is starting to collapse or contract seriously, it doesn't stop Eichmann and his guys from implementing day after day more trains, take more people from different towns because they're all registered, and they're all in the ghettos, and they're all you know, separated, and they're ready to go, and all that sort of thing. Um, I repeat, Germany is losing the war. Hitler is in denial about this, but Himmler is not. Okay, Hitler was the head of the SS and the one running all the terror stuff, and uh, he's well known uh, that he saw that Germany's losing the war, but he was in his own state of denial, uh, he or or uh, fantasy. He figured Himmler. I'm talking about now. Think about what I'm about to tell you. Himmler figures, well, the Allies hate Hitler, and so they'll never make peace with him. But if I take over, that's something totally different, and they'll let me be in charge. <laughs> okay. So he somehow magically was popular in the West more than, than Hitler. Okay, out to law in. Well, I, I'm telling you this for a reason. If this is the state of mind of Himmler and the guys under him, if you're talking about making a peace, have to do something about the Jews. You see? If you're talking about making a peace, might have to stop the killing, that sort of thing. Maybe we can use the Jewish thing as a leveraging type of strategy Help us end the war, make cut a peace with the Allies. He really thought this would happen. His plan was make a deal with England and France, and then Germany can concentrate all its efforts on the Russians. Because after all, uh, what I say, make a deal with America and England. I mean, uh, and then take off against the Russians. Well, the Americans and the English don't want the Russians to take over Europe. Okay. So whether or not he was uh, crazy is not the issue. If you're Jewish, these ideas affect or can affect your faith. That's where I'm going with all this. And so uh, Himmler is willing, under the right circumstances, to cut a deal even with world Jewry, which to him is a real entity, and the allied leaders that they control. Of course, everybody knows Roosevelt and Churchill are totally tools of world Jewry. This is, this is part of the animams of Nazism, right? That you know, the Jews control the world, and they do a very effective job through it. Because if you're Hitler or Himmler, why would the Americans and the British be fighting us? We're fighting the communists for them. Uh, they, sh they should pat us on the back. It can only be the malevolent Jewish influence, and you just look at Roosevelt, you can tell he's Jewish, and uh, all this kind of, no, I, I, I'm serious. You, you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And again, the point is not whether it's real or makes sense, the point is, if my mother's fate depends on people who think like this, I have to take this into account in how I operate. I, I, I've done all this uh, to, to, to set the background. Uh, although Himmler, uh, um, it is in this context, that uh, Kastner, the Zionist leader, as I mentioned before, and his group of activists meet with Eichmann, uh, who of course works for Himmler, and, um, uh, and his staff, and especially with uh, Eichmann's number two or three guy, uh, Kurt Becher, see it in the uh, Nazi uniform, okay? And uh, he cuts a deal, uh, Kastner does, uh, with Eichmann to get a trainload of Jews, about 1,650 people or so, out to Switzerland, this famous Kastner train, 
where he says like this, the German show will give you a little sweetener, and if you give us, two, uh, I think, $2,000 a person, or maybe $1,000 a person, you know, you get people on this train, and this should show world Jewry what is possible out there if the right deal is made. Okay? Maybe there'll be more trains like this, maybe they won't. And uh, in exchange for this, you'll cooperate with us. And, you know, when, when you sup with the devil, as the expression goes, use a long spoon, they don't use a long spoon. And uh, the result is that he gets his, his uh, family out, which you can't exactly blame him. He gets uh, big Zionist leaders out. Uh, he gets some youth leaders out, and his relatives, and uh, they don't have money to, for $1,000 a person, so he opens it up for rich people. They'll pay two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 a person, now cover the expenses of the other guys. Uh, one of them, of course, the Satmar Kassin find out about this, is they'll pay whatever it takes to get the Rebbe out. And so the Satmar Rebbe, ironically, gets out on a Zionist train, and that's why he said, well, that's a fact. The, uh, uh, the, the, this is well known. Um, what you call it? And there's, there's some glitches along the way, but they get this Switzerland in the end. You know, they stop for a while in the concentration, but by the end, it does work. And that's, by the way, that is how the Satmar Rebbe survived the war. You understand? Um, it's uh, uh, beyond ironic, but uh, nevertheless, it's there. And by the way, they didn't do it for altruistic reasons, they did it because they paid the money. Now, um, Kastner hopes it'll be the first of other trains. He would go down as the greatest hero in Jewish history if he got 100 trains, you know, like that. Uh, so does Eichmann, but Eichmann wants it for his own reasons, as is revealed in the Joel Brand episode, because right after that, he meets this guy who's a member of that Barat Solo committee with Kastner, and he says, I'm going to let you go to Turkey, uh, contact England and World Jewelry, and tell them um, blood for trucks. Now, you don't have to give us cash, give us weenie transport, so give us thousands of trucks from American production, British production. We'll use, I promise we'll only use it on the Russian front. And in return, we'll give you, what do you want, 50,000 Jews, 500,000 Jews, you know, the, the numbers are not a problem. I can, I can do it. And he could. This is sad, and this is Eichmann, and the total amorality of it is not, it's not for discussion. We know who we're dealing with. But uh, the possibility of saving at least a half a million or a million people is out there, and yet, look at the way they're doing it. It's very crass. You really think you're going to split up the Allies? Right? That America's going to give them trucks to go use against the Russian army in 1944? You honestly think that's going to happen? Uh, Brand flies to Turkey. The uh, Jewish uh, agency is afraid of what he'll do. They tell the British. The British arrest him. He never gets to see anybody. He's interrogated in Cairo. Uh, he's a broken-hearted person because this never happened. Comes a key element in the, in the charge that the British and the others want the Jews to get killed. There's a little bit of truth in that because the British minister in, uh, in Cairo says, what am I going to do with a million Jews? Where am I going to put them? You don't want to put them in Palestine. Uh, for which remark, by the way, that gets out in the paper, he is assassinated two months later, Lord Moyne, by the Stern Gang. So it really gets, uh, the, 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 the pot is bubbling. Afraid that any screw-up might ruin prospects for future train deals with Eichmann, Kessner tries to bury the report of Rudolf Verba describing what is happening in Auschwitz, even though tens of thousands are being shipped there every day. Here comes a very, I told you, you get involved with the devil and you get, you get dirty. And so he's trying to kiss up to Eichmann. And you understand, this is a strange story. They're shipping off people all the time. And this guy is, so to speak, uh, doesn't have to wear a yellow star. He can move around and go wherever he wants. Uh, because after all, he represents world Jewry and the possibility of possibly, possibly making some deal. The Germans figure one day if they want to, they can kill him any time they want anyway. And so he's running around and conducting these sort of semi-negotiations. And uh, meanwhile, 
a number of Jews, two Jews escaped from Auschwitz, and they made it to Hungary. Uh, one of Rudolf Verba. My mother met them, and uh, Dr. Verba, and he says, you know what's going on over there? They're, they're, they're gas chambers. They're, they're mastering people every day. What you and I know now, uh, which is not a secret, at that time wasn't so well known, and um, Verba actually gets his report to Horsey, the head of the government, and that has some uh, you know, uh, consequences. I don't want to go into the whole story and take me too, too far a tangent, but uh, Kastner said, I guess, don't tell everybody. You just freak them out, and it'll just panic in the communities, and it'll depress everybody if they know the trains are going there. And they say, but people should know where they're going. He says, I'm working to stop that. Don't tell them anything. Ah, it becomes a very morally gray area type. Are you cooperating with Hitler? Is that what you're doing? Um, if the Jews knew what was in store for them, many would not go willingly. That's for sure. I repeat what I told you before. The extermination of the Jews of Hungary, the half million or so get killed, couldn't have happened if they didn't cooperate any more than is the case in Poland and these other places. You know, like I say, it's not the point, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying, it's not the point to cast blame of people who are stuck in the middle of hell, but, you know, if everybody runs away and fights and this and that and the other, what we know now is there would have been less people killed. Okay, I know it's easy to say, but, uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's not, it's not uh, non-true. This one... It, this would have upset Eichmann's efficiency timetable. It might get him mad. He might not uh, offer these type of deals or any other deals. The bottom line is, Kessner found himself playing God. Right? That, 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 that's what it goes down to. Remember, his family was safely on the train. Um, after the war, uh, Kessner makes Aliyah. He goes to Israel. He joins the Mapai party, Ben-Gurion's party. And uh, he rises. He's almost elected to the Knesset in 1951. He was one seat away. They got like 45, 46, and he was like 47 on the list. So he was a macher over there. He is by no means uh, the only survivor who acted in an ambiguous manner under the strain of the Shoah. I told you about that before. Okay? Um, do you know what... I mean, let's put it this way. Do you know what your relatives who survived the war, do you know what they actually did during the war? Maybe you don't. You see what I'm saying? Um, with everything they did 100% kosher, these are not... Uh, comfortable questions to ask. Uh, by 1952, Kessner is a mid-level official in the government, meaning being a member of the party, I told you last year that Mapai ruled Israel for a long time and it was Tammany Hall. If you're in the party, you get a job, you're not in the party, get out of here. Uh, he was the spokesman, the press spokesman for the Ministry of Trade and Industry under Dov Yosef. Remember him last year, the guy ran the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, rationing program and all the rest of it. So he's a Dover, you know, he's his official spokesman. It's a job. You know, now we're, we're doing, this week is a government furlough and shutdown. <laughs> a job with the government is a job with the government. And Israel's the same thing. Give you health insurance, give you all the benefits and all the rest of it. And he's a G12, a G13. You know, I mean, he's, 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 he's pretty good up, up on the uh, food chain. Uh, so things are going pretty good. And then in August of 1952, just when our story begins, a cranky old Hungarian Jew, uh, living in Jerusalem, his name was Malkiel Grunwald, accuses Kessner of being basically a war criminal and an accomplice of the Nazis. Right? Uh, there's Malkiel Grunwald, you see he's an old guy with a black yarmulke and all the rest of it. He's a strange bird, he was from Hungary, from Chopron, he ended up in Vienna. Um, his kids ended up not being so from, he was a big Mizrahi uh, macher over there and eventually gets to Palestine in 1938. His son fought for the Irgun, and was killed in the Sahal during the 48 war, and his daughter, you know, that kind of thing. And he, him and his wife end up having a little 10 room, shall we call it a hotel, or what's the right word, you know, pension or something like that, uh, in Kikarzion, you know, you know, you all know what it is. 
He's a Yerushalayim type Jew, and he's a, he's a type of guy you don't want to sit next to in shul. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why, or maybe you do, I don't know you. you know. He says, uh, Grunwald was, as I say, an Orthodox Jew from Hungary and Vienna. Uh, he was very definitely a grumpy old man with a stencil's new sheet, which he self-published. So he himself wrote up his own little newspaper every week, and, uh, and stenciled it and made uh, 200 copies, in which he vented and damned people and things that were banned in Israel, in his opinion. So basically, he says, this week, Ben-Gurion government has done this and it's outrage, and Rabbi Oberstein has done that thing over there, and this guy has done this thing over here, and this, you know, and, 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 and this government official is, 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 is stealing of this thing, and the Agudah stinks, the Mizrahi stinks. I'm serious, you know, it's, it's all venting, particularly corruption, particularly corruption with the corrupt Mapai establishment. Oh, boy. You know, they're running the country, and they're doing such terrible things, a lot of which is true. And uh, his, as they say before, his son... Uh, had uh, uh, died in uh, the battle for Jerusalem in the Sahal. He's one of the Zirgun guys that joined the Israeli army. Um, what can I say? There are Grunwalds everywhere in every show. Uh, Kessner, uh, so this, on one time, in one of these stencils that he sends in a couple hundred copies, I mean, you understand what some of guy writes his stencils, puts the stamp, buys the stamps, and, and sends it off to a, a reading list of people like journalists and others that he thinks are, are machers. It's uh, only in Israel. And, uh, and this week, you know, first, like I say, he dumped on Ben-Gurion, and then another time on Sherrod, and then some other guy over here in the government over here. This week he picked Kessner. And, uh, and he said that, as I said before, the guy's a accomplice of Hitler, and he caused the death of the Jews in Hungary by uh, cooperating with Eichmann, and he knew the truth and wouldn't tell anybody, and so on and so forth. Now, Kessner wanted to, was no dummy. He wanted to ignore the whole thing. After all, it wasn't even in the real press. True. Um, he had a good job and position, and he didn't need to deal with the acquisitions, uh, accusations from the 72-year-old crank. The trouble is, for him, that the uh, accusations that the Mapai had high-ranking members who were Nazi collaborators, who had financially benefited from the Holocaust, he said, whatever happened to the money to the Hungarian Jews, you know, Kessner has it in a bank somewhere, um, which he shared with his Nazi buddies. This was too good of a story to remain below the radar screen. The story was picked up by, uh, does anybody remember this from old days? Olam Hazeh, you all remember? From Uri Avneri, this was a left-wing uh, thing. This guy was the, the arch enemy of all religion and all Zionism in Israel. And uh, uh, back in the early 50s, there was a widely read sensationalist weekly published by uh, Uri Avneri. As I said, the German Jew came to Israel. He was in the Israeli army. And afterwards, he, he uh, as you'll see later on, these are the guys who are so against this is the ones who want Israeliness and not Judaism. That, that's the real story. You know what I'm saying? They want Israel to completely shed all Jewish connections whatsoever. It should just be Jews, but should have no Judaism, Jewish culture at all. Uh, and therefore, uh, let's put it this way, he, he uh, loathes the Mapai, the Mapai loathes uh, the Olamazeh. Many years, Ben-Gurion and the others, they put bombs in their offices and they do all kinds of dirty tricks to guy to try to close the place down, which of course made them read by more people, as you know. Um, and over the course of uh, 1953, I said this thing happened in late 40, 52, in the course of 53, um, he had the misfortune to run across a Yekka, the, uh, the, the uh, Attorney General of Israel, the, 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 was Chaim Kohn, who uh, was originally from a... Uh, 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 this is a real problem. He's from a Orthodox Jewish family uh, that they made Aliyah 
and then he shed this. He eventually became a Supreme Court judge and married a Grusha. You know, he was a Cohen. He made all kind of uh, famous Israeli court cases. And he had all the uh, stiffness of looking at it, you know, like a mathematician. And he says, how is it possible that a high-ranking government official can, with impunity, be accused of these sorts of uh, morally outrageous things? We must respond, you know, and uh, sue this for libel. And Kastner is saying, let it go, you know. <laughs> and uh, no, we can't do it. And by the time it's over, uh, this guy pushes, and he says, oh, we've got to take it to court. Big mistake. Any lawyers in the audience, they'll tell you right now, don't do libel cases most of the time. Is that correct? Very hard, very hard to do a libel. Why, why is it very hard to win a libel case? No, no, no. Why is it very hard to win a libel case? It puts you on the stand too. Right? You accusing this guy of libel? I get to put you on the stand. Get to ask the question. Teddy Roosevelt once made the mistake, after he was in office, of suing a, 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 a small town newspaper in upstate New York, called him a drunk. He was so outraged, he, he sued him. He went to that little court in upstate New York, and sure enough, that little schnook got a lawyer, and he asked Teddy Rizzo, so how many drinks do you have for dinner? And how many have for lunch? By the time it was over, it wasn't, he, who, who's the one who got the egg on the face? You know, he said, I have two drinks before this, and a drink, three drinks, and there isn't any more, I don't want to talk about it. Why don't you want to talk about it? You know, it's, it's, you, you, you got to watch how we do a libel case. Okay? So, that's, that, that, that's, that's what happens over here. To the government's surprise and horror, the, the libel suit against Grunwald, which should have been an open-shut thing, turns out to be a very long one. It runs from January to October of 1954. Okay? It became the OJ case of Israel. The judge issued the verdict only in June of 55. Okay? That's a very long trial indeed. The verdict ran 250 pages. So notice what they thought would be a little thing. Didn't. Okay? And uh, Grunewald was broke. As they say, he was a grumpy old man. But he had the advantage of being regarded as a hero and a martyr and useful uh, by the Jabotinsky types that were in Israel. Okay? If you're uh, in the Begin groups or even the other groups on the right that hate Begin, they had all kind of right-wing groups in Israel, right-wing uh, parties, as I'll explain in a minute. The whole course of Zionism was wrong because Jabotinsky should have been the one on top and he would have done the right thing in the Holocaust instead. These evil guys of Ben-Gurion and uh, Sharet and others took over and they mislaid everything. And even today they don't acknowledge that the Irgun was real heroes of the foundation of Israel. And all that stuff was in full hatred form in uh, the early 50s over here. The Jabotinsky movement had split into two. One part was the Cheirut led by Menachem Begin who in 51, 1951, suffered extreme humiliation in the elections um, and had gone into deep depression. I don't know if you're begging suffer from depression at the end of his life. If you, if, well, I mean, uh, be perfectly honest, when he left office, he was in depression until the end of his life, the last 10 years. He stayed in pajamas all day long in his apartment. What do you call it? You understand? Um, I mean, for, for 10 years. You know? I, I mean it. So um, his party went from, 15, from 14 seats to eight. So that's a half. So it was a big humiliation, and uh, should they throw him out? Should they not throw him? It was really uh, bad news. And, and, and as I can say, he just went in depression and stopped attending, uh, stopped attending the Knesset. And uh, he, you know, he was out of it. Um, a whole group had broken away and regarding Begin not as a worthy leader. Among other reasons, he was regarded as too religious. <laughs> Even though he wasn't religious, but by their standards, he's too religious. Because if you identify with Jewish tradition, if you feel that Shomer Shabbos is not a negative a trait that was considered extreme left because Jabotinsky himself was atheist. 
This betrayed the explicitly atheist Masur of Jabotinsky. These guys wanted a Canaanite state, I promise you, radically divorced from traditional Judaism. Remember I said, I showed these guys before, this guy you probably never heard of. There was a whole movement of right-wingers in Israel in the 48, 49, 50, in the early 50s, where they said, we want to have a state in which Israeliness has a, a get, a total divorce from anything Jewish. We want to have a state of, go back to ancient Canaanites, <laughs> right? And uh, have no religion or pagan religion, and somehow or other in their fantasy, they imagine this will make them peace with the Arabs, or maybe they'll conquer the Arabs and have a huge empire from Egypt to Iraq. Uh, like I say, we, we Jews do not lack our share of screwballs. And the result, <laughs> and the, and the result was that, you know, you had, all, and these are writers and active type of people in the culture and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, today it's a joke, but it wasn't at that time. And, but they all hate my pie, <laughs> okay? Uh, this is the group that ran the Olamazan newspaper. They see this trial as a chance to bust them off high, expose the sleaze and corruption that it embodies. It happens at the time the Prime Minister of Israel was not Ben-Gurion. He went in retirement for a year. It was Moshe Sharet, who was uh, basically kind of, uh, in personality very much of a loser, a very OCD type of person. And uh, this group gets, so this, this uh, right-wing group says like this, this from Guy Grunwald is not even the case. We'll give you a lawyer, the best lawyer, and we're just going to use this to bust the corruption that he has pointed to. And so you're not even going to make a case. Uh, it won't even matter who you are. And to get a talented young lawyer, Shmuel Tamir, uh, Shmuel Katznelson, uh, 31 years old, to represent the defendant for free. And he's going to make his uh, name in this uh, trial. And uh, what he says from day one is, he said, what's your defense? Uh, the judge says, you want to say that uh, the guy's a crank, he's 17 years old, he's out of it. No, we stand with everything he said. Our defense is going to be that there's no libel. Everything he said about this guy is true. He is a monster. He is Hitler's best friend. He did all these sorts of things. And it just said, really? Yeah. And, uh, and as often happens in libel cases, uh, the accuser becomes the accused. Almost from day one. The accuser becomes the accused. Kastner claimed he had saved a trainload full of Jews. He said, I saved 15, 1,600 people from the show. What did you do? And he had tried his best with Eichmann and company to prevent whatever he could, that he had buddied up with Kurt Becker, meaning he made his business to buddy up with this Nazi official, as a result of which massacres at the very end of the war were, pre were prevented. This seems to be true. At the very, very end of the war, they were planning in a lot of concentrations to just shoot everybody, and he drove around with this guy Becker, and he said, don't do that, the war's over, and all the rest of it. Um, again, my father, me, myself, my father was in Dachon, they had a death march, and uh, I don't know if it's connected with this, Actually, it's not, but he told me at the very, very end of the war, like a day before the Americans showed up, they marched whoever was arriving to a valley, and they surrounded a place with machine guns, they were going to kill everybody. Um, I'm going by what my father told me, and he said, the last minute, Rundstedt, the famous uh, German field marshal, showed up. He said, forget it, guys, it's over, you know, just don't do this today and kill everybody. But those are the type of situations that popped up at the end of the war, and he says, I stopped a bunch of those, that he, Kessner, had gone once or twice to Switzerland during the war to negotiate one of those Eichmann deals of cash for Jews, and voluntarily going back to Hungary. So I noticed he says, look, you know, I'm honest, because if I want to say myself, I was in Switzerland already, I wouldn't have to come back, I would have been safe from the Germans. And I went back and put my head in the lion's jaw in order to save more Jews. Um, so I'm a hero in tragic times. A hero in tragic times. Uh, Tamir, the lawyer, concentrated on proving a number of damning facts. Kessner had suppressed the diffusion of the verbal report, leaving masses of Hungarian Jews unaware of the fate that awaited them when the trains reached their destinations. Did you know about what was happening? Yes. Why didn't you tell the people? 
well, for this reason, that reason, I don't want to get them Isn't it true that if the people would have known, they would have been resistant, they would have run away, they wouldn't have gone on trains? Well, we'll never, what do you mean you'll never know? Isn't it true, this and that and the other? And the judge gave him full leeway. And so he nailed him on that one. Um, so you have a hand in cooperating with the Germans and keeping the information away, except from your family and the people you want to get on the train. But everybody else, he didn't tell. So what does that make you? And he proved that Kester had betrayed Hannah Senesh. You all know that is, right? The famous uh, heroine of Israel. See, do we have that? Yeah. Right, you know, there's a famous Zionist there. She parachuted in in 1944 to try, with a couple others to try to help the, 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 the Jews over there. Kessner is the one that said, give yourself up to the Germans, and which she did. You see, you're going to make things worse over here. Here's somebody that we sent from Eretz Yisrael to try to do something, and you hand it over, you know. And he said, well, I had a reason, but you see, little by little, his uh, legal position in the court was, was cracking. And most damningly, um, in 1946, after war was over, um, Kessner went to the war crimes trials and testified on behalf of Kurt Becher that he was a good guy and he got him off. Plus uh, another guy, Krume, you know, another, some of the big murderers over there. What would you do that for? I didn't really do that. Here's the, here's the letter. Well, the Jewish agency told me to do it. Oh, really? That's even better. Let's get the Jewish agency. You know, the Mapai's boss said, Jewish agency has a guy come and say, oh, no, we have nothing to do with that, you know. And everybody's, and as this got out into the press, it stunk to high heaven. And every day, the lawyer is saying like this, and I'm going to uncover another layer of the sleaze and corruption that characterized the criminal regime that unfortunately is the head of the government of Israel and was uh, playing a criminal role in the uh, criminal negligence and in cooperation and the worst massacres in Jewish history, and now they got the nerve that they want to say they're the leaders of Israel and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, by the way, Becher survived the war, obviously, didn't get into the camp, became a millionaire, and did a lot of business with Israel. Right? What, what, what a screwball world. Under the Shulami, under the reparations uh, stuff. Uh, died in 81. Every week, the Olam Hazem magazine gave this full screaming headlines, which led the general press to pick up the story. It was all in the Russian compound, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the big uh, Beit Mishpat in Yerushalayim. Mapai is very powerful and entrenched. However, this image is now definitely tarnished, and many buy into the argument of the lawyer that you're dealing with an evil clique. The Jabotinsky myth, which is an alternative version of the past, uh, what might have been, is now invigorated. Jabotinsky, unlike Ben-Gurion, everybody knows, knows they say, love Yidin. You see? Ben-Gurion, these guys, they just wanted Israel, and they didn't care about the Yidin. And Jabotinsky cared about each and every guy individually. If he were alive, things went different. It would have a different reaction on the Shoah, and it would be a different new state of Israel. And uh, the guys you have now in charge uh, couldn't care less about that. Ben-Gurion said, all we care about is building the state. Moshe Sharet said, that, you know, and Chaim Weitzman said, they're just human dust. All this kind of stuff is brought up in there in the course of the trial. Begin gets a political tchis as a result of this. That's exactly what happened. Once it started taking off, Next, he said, oh, he got him to start making speeches. He said, yeah, you know, it's all part of, well, the, the part of uh, the, the criminal groups. Uh, we in the Irgun, we, didn't, we, we, were we started the illegal immigration, and Ben-Gurion suppressed it. This is true. In the late 30s, I told you before, right? We could have gotten more people in. It's all part of a pattern, you know, and, and, and so forth. Um, meanwhile, Israel is going through a difficult period in terms of Arab terrorism. Public confidence is shaken. It's not a great time for the Mapai. This is 1954 and 55. The judge in the, in the trial uh, happens to be a Jabotinsky supporter. 
So the government made a big mistake in that. Um, he spent, the judge spends nine months reviewing the evidence and then releases his verdict a few weeks before the new elections. <laughs> right? uh, he, he, the, the, the verdict was released in June. The elections were in July. Okay? Uh, guilty. Let's put it this way. He said, like, is there five? He, he said, I don't know exactly what the libel count is, reading all this confusing stuff. I boil it down to five charges. That, that uh, the, the Grunewald said Kessner did this, he did this, he did this, this, and this. Um, viewing this with total dispassion, four he did. One is not proven. So pay him a buck. You get it? He says to Grunewald, he said, you owe him a dollar, a lira. Okay? But the other four, guilty as charged. Oh my goodness, a court. Political explosion, cultural explosion. This is the libel case that went wrong. <laughs> I told you before. Uh, Kessner equals capo. The Jewish moral underside of the Shoah. I told you, this is Israel, where you see guys in the street that want to murder my mother. Uh, Begin goes into uh, high form. Uh, the Mapai coddles the capos, you know. And as a result, I mean, it was, a, and the government itself went into major panic. Uh, now some people have dug up the old records of the meetings, and they said, what are we going to do? And, you know, uh, we have to suppress this. And, and uh, the Communist Party in Israel is already saying, why don't you have a law that says death penalty for people that helped Hitler, and Kastner should be the first one, you know, to be killed, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Israel is going crazy. Um, as a result, uh, in the elections of July, uh, the Mapai takes its biggest hit. It went from 46 to 40. That's the worst they suffered. Um, they still were ahead of others, and they went on to keep the government, but Sharet was out, and Ben-Gurion had to come back in. Uh, the Cheirut went from 8 to 15. So that was the Trias and Mesa Rebegin. As a result of that, uh, he, he became a credible figure, and after that, he just went up. If he went screw up, he could have gotten 17, 18, 19, but the day of the, the, before the election, he drove around in a, in a Cadillac looking like Juan Perón, and this turned off, a, no, I mean it, and it, it turned off a lot of people over there. That's, that's what they said at that time. Um, so Israel is a crazy place, as you know. Um, Kessner was ruined, but he's not a criminal. Think about what I said. He lost a libel case, but people are still waiting. Are you going to, what the government should now do is prosecute him for crimes. I mean, the court just confirmed that he did it wrong. No, 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 no. My pie party says this verdict was all wrong. We're going to appeal it to the Supreme Court. Uh, oh, yeah, why are you coddling him? I mean, if it's proven in court that he did wrong, why are you kissing him trying to prevent him? See, this proves that you're all part of the big plot to betray the Jewish people during the Holocaust. No, no, that's not what's happening over here. This is, we feel it's a miscarriage of justice. Look, look how poisoned the, the visit to the Jewish past. And by the way, this is just a little that. It's just opening a little bit of what happened in the show I told you before. It's not necessarily a pretty picture. It's not all the worse of ghetto. A phenomenon like this brings out all kinds of, of, of issues. Uh, the government appeals the verdict. The Supreme Court takes three years. Okay? At the end of three years, well, before that happens, Kessner is bumped off. He's assassinated by Jews who say kill the capo. Then the Supreme Court issues in 1957. Then the Supreme Court issues a verdict that, that, that quashes that, 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 that the verdict was unfair. Naturally, everybody says, like this, oh, sure, they're trying to cover off a Ben-Gurion. You see? And so you can't, it's a my, my pie whitewash. That proves... Right, the corruption of the government, uh, the view of the corrupt government, cover-up of a capo, becomes widely known a few years later when Ben Hecht in America, who had been part of the Jabotinsky movement, writes it up in perfidy. 
This is perfidy, what I just told you. All he did was write the English version from the Israeli papers of the Kessner trial. And he totally buys into the story I just outlined to you. Therefore, he says, look how corrupt the Israeli uh, uh, establishment is. How does the Israeli establishment react? They banned the book. Oh, that makes it a bestseller, don't they? <laughs> right? Are you old enough to remember? I am. Are you old enough to remember before Begin came to office? If they caught you bringing that book into Israel, they confiscated you get into trouble? Which, of course, made it a Samizdat, uh, you know, underground bestseller. This yeshiva guy, and that guy always floated around because if Israel wants to ban it, that proves it must be true. Otherwise, what would you care? So look how uh, weird this is. The establishment and the children of Kessner vociferously deny his own guilt down to the present time. What, what I, I looked the other day. It's amazing. We live in the age of the internet, and so you don't have to have a big um, uh, publishing company or a corporate. You can do your one, one man thing. And so Kessner's, Kessner's family are all over the internet with all kinds of YouTube things saying he was innocent. And what's really freaky, and I'll show you this, it takes about two minutes, I just found the other day, is his family put out a thing called Killing Kessner or something like that, in which, now listen to this, he was shot by two guys. And, uh, and they were uh, arrested and tried and convicted. But there's no death penalty in Israel, so they were sentenced to a prison uh, thing, but it was clear that they did this as a sort of political crime, so to speak. You know, they weren't murderers in the typical sense of hold up people or something like that. They did this as a one time thing. So a couple years later, they got off. That's what happened. And so here you have a capo system in reverse. Here, Kessner's children walking around, knowing that this guy shot our father, and he doesn't deny it. And so what's amazing is somebody went on the internet and they put them together, maybe his own kids did, where you'll meet the guy who shot him. He says, Yes, I shot him. And the, the, the daughter saying, why, or, or, or something to that effect. Here, take a look at this. As I say, this is a pro-Kessner piece. About two minutes, two and a half minutes. They were the, he was a hero. This is, guy, this is the guy who shot him. That's his daughter. They're all in one room. All right, that's enough. You can find it yourself if you're interested. Only nowadays with the internet and with the YouTube and all this kind of stuff, can they arrange these kinds of issues, which gives it surreal. Let me conclude by saying, the Kessner fear jolted in Israel, whose population, certainly his leadership, had sought to avoid discussing the, uh, the, the whole thing by arguing that the establishment of Medinat Israel meant that the Jewish people had moved past the Holocaust. But the Kessner uh, affair demonstrated that Israel and Israelis had not done so. In the following years, the Shoah would be incorporated into Israeli culture, I repeat, would be incorporated into Israeli culture, 
And ultimately, even Israelis at Ben-Gurion would find themselves constantly referring to the Shoah to justify whatever Israel found itself forced to do to preserve its national security. Down to today, if Bibi Netanyahu, and I don't blame him a bit, says we might have to nuke Iran or whatever they call it, what's the justification? He says, well, they went to another Holocaust, you see? And so uh, I, I entitled tonight, Coping by Ignoring the Jews in the Holocaust of a 50 to 56, uh, can one cope with this by ignoring? The answer is no. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.